Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science? In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space, such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. In this episode, we speak with Scott Wilson from Wilson AI. Scott is the founder and CEO of Wilson AI, which is an artificial intelligence company based in Melbourne, Australia. He has almost 30 years of commercial experience. And before starting his AI company, he was the managing director and chief executive officer of an ASX listed company called iSelect, where he oversaw the development of their machine learning capabilities and artificial intelligence. In this episode, Scott tells us about his learnings or throughout his careers about educating people on the use of data, bringing into new industries, helping people understand customers better through the use of data and get much, much more business value. He gives us really great tips and will give you a fresh perspective to bring into your businesses. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Hi, this is Felipe Flores, and today I'm speaking with Scott Wilson. How are you doing, mate? I'm very well. Thanks, Felipe, for having me. Great to be joining you today on the show. Ah, thanks so much for making the time. I am very excited to be speaking with you. You've had such an interesting career and I guess so maybe so different to what you're doing now. So first I wanted to ask you, what's your background? Could you give us a little bit of an overview of your career to date? Yeah, I've had a very diverse background, actually. I'm currently the founder and CEO of Wilson AI, an artificial intelligence company. But uh, if you go way back in my career, I started out pushing trolleys at Woolworths. And then when I finished school, went into their management trainee program. So I started my career in retail. And I'll I'll come to it later. I'll talk about why that uh, really started me on a journey of data and insights and how where we are now in artificial intelligence. But I then went into consumer goods. So I stepped from retail to the other side, from retail to the manufacturer. And worked across companies like Kraft Foods and Fonterra, SBC, PZ Cousins globally. And then into the entertainment industry. So yet another change of, of industries and into uh, working for 20th Century Fox as their sales director for Australia and New Zealand. And the last um, bit over five years, then I went to a digital disruptor. So another industry yet again and worked as the managing director and CEO for iSelect. And as part of that, I was also the chairman of the board for iMoney, which was a comparison company across Southeast Asia. So on the surface of that, you go, hang on, you've worked across retail, entertainment, into digital disruption. What do they all link? And I guess the common thread for me was always passion around customers and customer facing. But then um, I learned many years ago, and it's probably all the way back starting at uh, Woolworths is when you focus on the customer's needs, everything else takes care of itself. Now, to focus on the customer's needs, you've got to understand what they want, which is where 
you know, in the early days of understanding insights and understanding retail training patterns and then what consumer demand was. So we spent a lot of time analyzing data and looking at it from a customer's perspective. And I guess that's been the common thread, even whether, you know, it was 20th Century Fox, for example, people look at it and go, it's all about a movie. Well, it's actually about sitting down on a Friday night, having a bit of time out or getting the family together or having a laugh or a cry. So there's still a customer need that you've got to understand behind each of those. So, and I guess that focus on customer need has always helped me trend send the industries and be able to which give me quite an interesting and diverse career that is incredible and something that you yeah you've always carried with you that customer focus and tell me how did you get into data what was it about data that pulled you in and got you interested well, it seems I was reflecting, preparing for the podcast today, and I actually remember back in the very early days when I was Woolworths doing my trainee programs, when barcoding had just started, and we still used to do stock ordering by writing on the shelf. You'd literally say, okay, there were, I need two cartons there and write on the shelf with a text or sort of thing. And every day we'd have to update it. So to get filled, update the amount, reorder it again. And it was just when we started with, I guess, barcodes, and you were really digitizing a product because if you think back then, you'd take a, say it was a can of baked beans, write up, you know, 50 cents at the, at the checkout. And so that was it. But you had no information on the products, no information on, it was all decentralized, if you like, fragmented. That barcode, you could all of a sudden then start to manage stock turns, sales, inventory management, stock takes were automated. We could do analytics and reporting off the back of it. You could start to understand who the manufacturer was, the country of origin, like just that one piece of trigger and, and I guess then going into consumer goods certainly really well because in consumer goods it's really really tight margins so the manufacturing sides are very thin margins millions of customers so you're talking in high volumes so you've mm. got to be able to segment those customer bases to find new products analyze it look for ways to profitably grow and then I started to understand and I, and I guess I remember another time when I went from I was actually at Fonterra their global dairy business so then brands like Bega and Mainland and I was running their retail business went across to their food service business. So this is where you're dealing with cafes and we're talking to McDonald's, little restaurants, all the food service industry. And coming from a grocery business dealing with Coles and Woolworths, where it was very quite advanced analytics, we'd have analytics teams, we'll be doing ethnographic studies on consumers and putting cameras into their homes, that sort of stuff, into the food service industry where we had no data. There was nothing. It was a $200 million business and it was run on sales reps telling you what they thought. Coming from an industry where we had uh, in the grocery side with Coles and Woolworths, Nielsen or Aztec data down to a store level. So you can see everything, all your competitors, all the information you'd ever want into an industry that was like 20 years behind. I, I, I went, whoa, hang on. And we had to figure out how to gather that data to, to turn what was essentially verbal feedback into meaningful insights to then run the business. And we started um, in the food service industry because none of the outlets would tell you what your competitive volume was, whereas in grocery industry, we got that. So what we started doing was then asking the reps to say, look, why don't you um, ask the outlet how many pails, like 20 kilo jars of mayonnaise they sell? Because we knew that was a good seller. And then we'd use that as a proxy data point to tell us how many bags of cheese they should sell. I know it sounds crazy, but that was our data. But that really honed when I came back into the grocery industry. And at this point, I was coming into a senior role as a director. I was like, wow, in the grocery side, we get all of this data and we're not using it. We're not turning that data that we have into insights. We're being lazy with the data. So it really taught me the value of using what you have and then essentially digitize. So even when you don't have data, how could you find another way to proxy that? You look at what we're doing now, facial recognition, we can actually take a physical environment, apply a biometric 
algorithm over the top and you're digitizing that environment. So then you start to do the analytics over the top of it. So from a very early days of I've got no information on a can of baked beans to now you can digitize a physical environment using a biometric algorithm. It's I mean, we've come a long way in what doesn't seem like that long, but it, it is. Exactly. It does not seem that long, but the progress is tremendous. So tell me how back in those days, working in, in consumer goods, how did you find it convincing people that data was important? How did you go about doing that? What was the, that experience like? I think it was interesting because often you would see people, they'd, they'd pull lots of large presentation decks. So we, we might have been going in to see a buyer of a category. The process that Coles and Woolies use is once every six months, you'd have to go into a range review. And essentially, you're pitching for either new products, deletions, you were changing categories, deciding where the products were going to be laid out on the shelf. And, and essentially, ultimately, the retailers made that choice. But if you had really good insights and you were seen as someone the, the retailer could trust and rely on your research or your insights, then they tend to work more closely with you. So every manufacturer would get the opportunity, but only those companies that I guess would value add. And that was the piece that taking, because everyone had the same data set. We all worked off, whether it was Nielsen, for example. So we all had scan level data, buy store, the consumer patterns, the category, but it was really understanding the buyers, and it's the same today, the buyer's objective. So what are they trying to do? What's their strategy, be that the company strategy? their department strategy. So you had to understand overall, I'll use Woolworths as an example, what's Woolworths strategy at the time? How does that fit for grocery? And then the category that you're talking to that buyer, how does that fit within that department? So you'd sort of break it down each area because ultimately what they cared about was their KPIs. Buyer was sitting there saying, my boss is expecting X margin, X sales, you know, X profit. So being able to then translate that data into a valuable insight for the buyer and saying, look, against your objectives, here's what's going to happen. Here's how it's going to play out for you. This is what we would recommend and, and not just presenting reams and reams of information. And I, and I think at the time in retail, we were very data rich, but we were insight poor. We had lots, in fact, I'd argue probably too much data, but we hadn't understood the value of training our teams into distill that data into an insight. And so we had a bit of a rule of thumb, if you like, it was every buyer needed five key points, no more. And we needed on those five to be talking to them probably three times in advance of that major meeting. So once every six months. So if we weren't talking about and introducing those ideas and concepts in advance, months in advance, because people can't take all the information all at once. So you've got to slowly seed that information to them. So for us, it meant working six months in advance of it, understanding what those objectives were that linked to the buyer's objectives, and then just constantly distilling that data into those key insights. That is fantastic. And there's so many interesting things happening there in parallel that I want to ask you about. Because on one side, you're doing a transition that I think a lot of industries are doing at the moment, going from lots of data and not many insights to producing more insights with maybe less data than what they actually have. So sort of one piece. And part of that is building the team and the culture. So I definitely want to ask you about that. The other piece that I see is around the customer focus that you were mentioning before and putting yourself in the customer's shoes, showing them insights that are actually valuable to them and doing that consistently over time to help you build the relationship and get the sale in the long run. So first, I'll ask you about building the team, the culture mm. and getting people to think about insights, generating insights. How was that journey for you back then? I think consumer goods were quite advanced in their planning and how they structured because like I touched on earlier, that because the industry itself 
had pressure throughout the early 2000s on retail margin. It hasn't got any better nowadays as retailers yeah. have concentrated more and more. And we went, when I started my career, you know, probably mid-90s, to be frank, we had more insights than what the retailers, they really didn't have the information. So you turn up in a lot of ways relying on the manufacturers to give them the insights. Right. But a couple of things in Australia happened that massively changed that. And that was when Coles and Woolworths went from state-based buying to national teams. So all of a sudden, where it was fragmented buying and in industries and you could engage, and if you had a win in one state, you might have had a loss in another, but it didn't really matter in the overall. All of a sudden, you had one buyer and one buying team that had all of the buying power. And the retailers started to invest significantly in insights themselves. And so we went from being the consumer goods industry where they were ahead on category insights and retailer insights to all of a sudden playing catch up. And the buyers had information that we didn't. The early 2000s, that was quite insightful for me because I sat back and went, hang on, information's now power. That knowledge and insight is changing the dynamics of the negotiation. Whereas before, it was almost like the manufacturers had a lot more of the uh, power because they had the insights. It had flipped and moved to the retailers. So the retailers mm. knew everything. And so for us back then, what we did is we built very large category development or category insights teams. And these were teams that sat between sales and marketing because sales and marketing would often have, or they're working on the same overall objective that have often different perspectives and time horizons and KPIs. And so we used to build these category development teams who were responsible for, in essence, playing the impartial. So marketing might have had an objective to grow a brand, sales had a volume or a revenue target, whereas the category team would take both of those as inputs. They'd also take the retailer's objectives and strategies, and we'd develop a category plan. So where we were seen almost as business advisors, we were going into the retailer and saying, look, here's your objectives, here's what we think should happen from a customer perspective, your consumer who's shopping in your store, and here's the various inputs. Now, if really good category teams and dealt with some, whether in the UK when I was with PZ Cousins, they had some great category teams dealing with Tesco or here in Australia, they would almost take a company agnostic position. So they were taking the insights and the consumer or customer insights, and they were going into the retailer and being their business advisor. You know, and I guess in a data scientist perspective, it's understanding who that customer is and who's their customer. So whether that's internally and you know, it's the chief data scientist who's got to go and front up to the CEO and that's your customer and their customer, or you might be serving another function. You've got the marketing team yelling at you and you want, want information or you've got the sales team. It's being able to stump, understand a couple of why and why, because the better you understand that why, what are they using? What are they hoping to achieve? What's their objective? Then the better you can match the inputs data and then develop and craft those insights of the stories. And I think for us at the time, building teams that were really good storytellers could take lots and lots of data, distill it down, and then succinctly share a story from what that data has told them, what's the insight you're drawing out. Because we used to have a, a great saying, it was a, it was a Coke saying when I was at SBC, it was the so what. And it was like, you had a single sales objective going and that was what you were trying, but, but so what? I've got all this insight, I've got all this data, now what? What am I going to do with it? And if you couldn't answer that question, to be frank, your presentation was a waste of time because no one's going to listen to it. <laughs> That's exactly right. That is phenomenal to have that, I guess, value add, but also consultative approach so early on. And to have that idea to build that category planning team, how did you come to that point? How did you come to creating that as a separate team with that focus? I think it was that power imbalance with the retailers at the time because we held all the cards, being the insights, to the retailer holding all the cards. And the other thing, the grocery industry, not knowingly, but in hindsight, 
the mistake they made is when we went from state-based buying to national. So there used to be account teams in every state. It was seen by the manufacturers as an opportunity to reduce costs. So they went from six people plus a head office team to just the head office team. Now, what it did was developed a um, talent gap. So no longer did we have six account managers training in every state that you could then draw on. And they might have been dealing on a $5 million or a $20 million account. All of a sudden, you were looking after Woolworths and it was a $100 or $200 million account. So all of a sudden, the stakes became much higher. What it did is it there was a bit of a talent war going on, a bit like happening in data science right now. We haven't got time to train or invest in people, so what we'll do is go and poach somebody else's. And that's fine, and you can do it for a period of time. Salaries go north. It's great if you're on the receiving end. But then there's no future talent coming through. So they're not learning the early mistakes and the issues and, you know, when you think about building a team. And so for us, it was coming out in the industry where we had to find a way to build talent and not distract either sales or marketing people from their day jobs, but have team members that were skilled in analyzing the information and drawing those insights. Because what we'd often see, people would pull together a presentation and it'd be 100 pages long. You've lost the buyer at about 10. As opposed to saying, what are the five things that I'm trying to get across? Now, what data and insights do I need to support each one of those? So a bit like, what's my hypothesis? What's your objective? Okay, now what's the stuff I need to support that? Prove it or disprove it, either way as opposed to just information overload and pages and pages and pages and reams of uh, data. And we used to see that all the time. And I think, I don't know whether it was conscious or unconscious, we, yeah, the ones that, where you had really clear objectives and only information, you know, if that was one page and you were done, then fantastic. If it needed 20 pages, then it was about understanding what's the objective and can I answer that objective? And if that's how quickly or how succinctly can I do that? Oh, and that's such such a key point. That is such a great point that to start with the business problem and the hypothesis and then work into the data by focusing on how can I answer or solve that. How did you find the process of getting people to think in that way and approach their work from that perspective? Look, it was quite challenging, actually, because in the early days, teams, marketers wanted to build their brand and salespeople wanted to hit their sales numbers. We would actually have um, training days where we'd take them through a category planning process. We'd actually do the strategy, if you like, and we'd pull the sales and marketing teams together and we'd walk through what's a, you know, do a SWOT analysis, do the business objectives, understand the retailer's objectives and KPIs. We'd then pull that and distill it down into a category plan. And so all of this was planned out. 12 months in advance. Where we got to in the end, because new product development is a good way to example it. Often the manufacturers with the retailers would have to launch new products at these range reviews once every six to 12 months. You might have um, been launching a range of products that could be worth $10, $20 million and could decide the future of the business in those events. So they were high pressure. The CEO down wanted to know what was happening. And it was a bit of a go, no go. So you know, if the buyer decided, no, we're not going to take that range, that could scuttle the whole whole thing. The risk of getting the decision wrong on the business was, you know, put the stakes right up there. And so we ended up um, sharing with the retailers and it was feedback from the retailers where what was happening back then, we'd often turn up with a product and it was almost like the big unveiling. It was like, ta-da, we've got this new product. And they go, yeah, I've already got one from your competitor. Thanks. Oh, so you've wasted all this R&D time, cost of development, manufacturing. And unlike a digital world, we were building factories. So you might have spent five, ten, twenty million dollars building a new plant to do it. So if you weren't sharing or engaging with the buyer, all of that capital could be wasted. I guess a lot of manufacturers started to learn the hard way of, look, the more we engage with the retailer longer term, so where's the category trends? So we'd always start with the consumer. What's happening in the consumer trend? What's the latest organic was starting to push? Okay, and we wanted to launch an organic cheese range. 
that was going to happen over you know, one year, two year, three years, we'd start to share those trends with the buyers, which is really about educating them on the trends for the industry and then bringing that back into a, what does it mean here? And, and we might look globally. We'd use often monitoring around the world to see what sort of food trends were happening. And then what does it mean for them locally? And when do we think those markets are going to develop? And therefore, what are, we, what are we as a manufacturer going to do? So it was always about sharing the longer term consumer insights because the better you did that and therefore where your company fitted into it, you're actually educating that buyer on the way. So I used the, the same process today. It's where's artificial intelligence heading? What does it mean for you as a company and how do we fit that into that journey? So if you're not planning ahead, these things would just come and hit you as opposed to being prepared for it. Spot on. And that's such a fantastic way to solve the problem because many people think that they are not in direct contact with the end consumer and that therefore it's not part of their job or it's not part of their company's responsibility to get those end consumer insights because they're one or two or three steps removed from it. But in your case, what you've done is understand the full value chain from the end consumer backwards to see how it would affect you two or three steps back. That's outstanding. I think you used a really interesting word there, value chain. I, I, I use that and I think about it whenever I deal with clients today because whether that's I'm trying to understand how an algorithm or machine learning might apply in that value chain, but I'll give you a great example of where you can come in with a whole series of bias and assumptions. You know, if you go back, we at the time when I was at uh, Fonterra were supplying McDonald's with little butter portions and whipped cream and things like that for the McCafe range, but we didn't have the cheese contract. So this is early 2000s. McDonald's were probably using about 450 million slices of cheese. Huge account and had been with Kraft Foods since the day they launched in Australia. We trained all of our team that were involved because our objective was to win the McDonald's cheese slice business. But we'd started very small in the McCafe industry, in the segment of the, in their stores. So we had our, all of our staff trained how to make burgers, full process, all the challenges that staff faced every day and got to know them over a couple of years. One of the assumptions going in is that McDonald's would be all about price. They were looking for the cheapest cheese slice. It's tough margin business, so therefore that was the assumption. You're talking about the value chain before. One of the greatest aha moments for me was they were sharing to us when we actually won the McDonald's cheese slices account and we weren't the cheapest. And we sort of said, okay, how? <laughs> and they said to us, look, we were dealing with uh, pancakes. So when you go into a McDonald's store and they make the pancakes, back then what they were doing, it was a powdered pancake mixture. So they'd get a 16-year-old to add water to it, shake it up, and every few batches, the 16-year-old would stuff up. So they'd have to throw that batch away. Then it was delaying their ordering. Then they're going to have to do another one. So their cost. So they actually went from, I think it was something like paying 30 cents a pancake, for example, to $1.20 to have a wet mix ready-made where so they just poured it out. So if you look at it on a cost basis, it was 30 cents to $1.20. When you looked at it in the value chain and understanding most of the cost was the ingredients and the labor, all of a sudden it was cheaper for them to buy the ready prepared pancake mix than what it was to prepare it themselves. So it's understanding that value chain and what's the objective. That little insight's always stuck with me because you go, here's a global company. And if you just come in with a bias or an assumption, it's all about price. You'll get that and you won't get the contract. You won't get the objective. Whereas as soon as we understood the value chain, we're like, huh, how that applied. We actually went and put uh, what they call soy lethicin in. It was like an ingredient that made cheese slices 
turn easier. The reason we, that was really important is when a 16-year-old's making a cheeseburger, it's really hard to pick up the cheese when you've got those plastic loose gloves on your hand. They're not a latex glove, but they're loose and it's really hard to pick them up. Yet if you turn the cheese, all of a sudden you get a corner and you can make a cheeseburger quicker. So we were saving them time and labor because most of their cost was in labor, not in the ingredients cost. So we went in at a higher price and we won the contract, even though we were on a, on a buy price much higher. That taught me a great lesson of not going in with an assumption or a bias. And it's not all about price. If you're selling on price, someone's always going to be able to sell it cheaper. I mean, Amazon will come along and do it at zero margin. Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. That is outstanding because you trained your staff to know your target customer and their business so intimately by essentially training them to make a burger, essentially, almost to, to That's work. Right at the customer side and then you found and this is where the customer focus that you mentioned comes in so strongly and it's so prevalent that you found what the company is wanting to optimize for that's which right is the, yeah the overall cost once you take in the whole value chain into consideration not just one input product that's exactly that's right. right you know like i said before if you're just looking at data and presenting back data, then you're letting the audience try and figure out what's the insight. The other thing we did, instead of adding clear cellophane tape to the boxes, we added blue tape because what they said is often tape gets in environment, sometimes gets uh, into food, and they didn't want that contamination, whereas blue, you can see it. And so we were solving other problems that were no, virtually no cost to us. You know, It was like to get blue tape versus clear tape, cost you nothing really. Yes. Yet it was a massive outcome for the customer. And so it's understanding what their problems are through that value chain and then saying, okay, is there ways I can solve that? And you think about it in a modern data science team today, it's the same process that data scientists should be doing. If they're working on data sets in isolation, then to be frank, they're probably wasting their time because when they come to the customer who's the consumer of the insight, if they don't understand what that team wants or the challenges they're facing or who their customer is they're trying to solve problems for, you might be solving the wrong problem. You might be actually working on the wrong item when all the time you have the solution, you just didn't know what the question was. Spot on. And I love that point and that insight so much. A lot of data scientists are trying to make cheapest cheese when they should be looking at how do they make the cheese easier to handle so the whole production is a lot faster. Right now, when we, Wilson and I, when we deal with clients, one of the first things we say to them is, look, let's process map. So say we're going to optimize a process. We say, let's mm -hmm. process map your current state. What's the as-is state of that process? And what is the to be? What are you actually trying to solve? You know, what, what's the thing, the outcome you're trying to get? And you'll often find as you go through that process, there's a whole heap of steps that have built up in many companies that have been operating for many years just because they've always been done that way. And it's about then saying, well, can we just completely remove any of those steps? Is there something in here that's no longer required if we get rid of it? And then think, okay, now where are we going to apply that algorithm, machine learning to drive that, optimize that particular process or put a propensive model in to help it. So it's being able to step back. If you think about a data scientist, if they're stepping into the middle of a team and they intimately understand what the objectives are and all the different perspectives, they're going to be able to go and source the right inputs. They're going to be able to go and figure out what the outcomes are. And that's what you're trying to do. Instead of um, here's the inputs, here's the rules, and you know, here's the outputs, you're actually saying, okay, what's my inputs? What's my outputs? Now figure, <laughs> figure out the bit in the middle. They should be working that way as a standard operating procedure, if you like. I think if you come in with a bias and you just assume price is the only feature, the only variable, then that's exactly what you'll focus on. Whereas if you stand back and say, well, 
maybe it's not the only variable. Maybe there's 20 here or, or like I touched earlier, maybe I don't have all the variables I need or the data. So I'm actually going to put facial recognition into a retail environment so I can understand age, gender, emotion of my customer. I can actually create the data, digitize that environment first. And, you know, unless you have a really clear view of that outcome, how do I know I need to go and get those inputs? It's funny, the time in consumer goods, I learned so much around strategy, data governance, understanding what the inputs you were, the category insights and understanding that customer. And that's really helped me translate so many different industries, being able to understand a customer and start at the outcome piece and work backwards, not not starting at what you've got and work outwards. Spot on. And that's one of the things that I wanted to ask you about around what were the themes that you found in working across all these different industries? That's one of them. But were there any other things that you saw that were helpful for you, that you saw that they were equally applicable from industry to industry? I think they want, you know, if price is all you focus on, that's what your customer will focus on too. You often see retailers that push a price message, you know, in the retail environment right now, it's pretty tough in Australia. They're 50, 70% off. It's all deep discounting. Then the customer comes used to it. Unless it's 50 to 70% off, they don't talk to you. You have retailers, when you talk to the customer, they're saying, look, I just want them to serve me. You know, why won't they come and help me? Why won't they solve this problem? Why won't they actually contact me and tell me when they've got a solution for the problem I have or go out of their way to help me with better customer service or customer experience. There's this mismatch of expectations and the more you focus on price, that erodes margin, which stops you being able to invest in helping to delight customers. I think that across the industries, that's been pretty common. I think the other one is too many industries spend, and this happens in lots of businesses, you spend all your time thinking inside the building. So you're thinking about the next meeting, what the boss is going to say to you, what the other department was, the office politics, all the other rubbish that goes on that you need to be spending all your time thinking outside of the building. So where's the customer or the consumer in your industry? What do they want? You talk about companies like Amazon, they have that consumer obsession. They are obsessed about helping the consumer. And why are they winning? Because they spend all their time thinking they're not inside the building (laughs) about how do they serve themselves or the next issue. So I think those foundations for me, that combined with that value add, am I adding value or am I wasting time? If you look at in a manufacturing environment, we did a study years ago when I was at Pizza Cousins on morning fresh dishwashing liquid. And we're mm. only actually adding value to the product 11% of the time. So the rest of the time, we were taking value away. So we were doing stuff that, that was needed to sell the product, to manufacture, store it. But storage of a product, wasted time, it's cost. It's not actually adding any value to the end product for the customer. Transport, it has to happen, but it's not adding value. It's just costing money and time and effort. So all those meetings, and I, I think if you're in a meeting, do you need to really be there? <laughs> Get out of the meeting and actually go and focus on the customer. Exactly. That's outstanding. That's outstanding. And tell me, why did you choose to start Wilson AI. When I look across, and I guess the benefit I've had working at iSelect, who are leading edge in artificial intelligence, the team there were fantastic. I guess my years in consumer goods, and yeah, I'm doing a lot of linear. So a lot of the work we do in consumer goods was pattern recognition, trend analysis. It was quite linear. Getting to iSelect and you know, really over the last nearly six years, having my eyes opened up to what's possible with artificial intelligence, machine learning. Then all of a sudden, you know, solving problems with machine learning that I'd never, you know, I would have cut my arm off. But 10 years ago to, to have that in consumer goods, I realized that we were one of very few companies in Australia that were competent at machine learning. And 
what happened over that time, we were often, so Yuval and the team there at ISLEC, when I was at ISLEC, we were often hosting one of our providers, so the suppliers of the finance, insurance, utility products, who would come in and say, look, could we learn from you? Can we understand what you do and how you're doing it and how to set up a data science team? We're thinking of putting an analyst on. So they want to come and spend time with us. They've gone from having business intelligence and analysts to, okay, we want to get a data science team set up. What are you doing, ISLEC? And we were doing a lot of work with the likes of Google Facebook around joining our algorithms, machine learning with theirs and starting to do a lot of beta trials. And last year, um, comment one of the team from Google said is they'd worked across their 100 biggest clients in Australia and nobody had the developed algorithms, so the propensity model in this case, at the level or the standard that I selected that meant they could do the trial they wanted to do and the appetite. So we were often pushing the boundaries. And it made me, I left iSelect in, in April, I sort of sat back and went, hang on, we've got all of these industries out there who are really almost consciously incompetent. They know that they want to do something in, they've heard this term AI. You know, if you go back five, six years ago, it was big data. Everyone, you know, the director had walked in and say, do we have big data? What are we doing with it? Whereas now they're, the latest conversation after they get past cybersecurity is, do, are we using AI? What's this machine learning thing? And so you're seeing a lot of executives or board directors are aware that AI is coming. You know, they probably use Google Maps once or twice, <laughs> Siri. And they're all of a sudden consciously knowing that they don't know anything about this and they don't know the application and they don't know how, why, when, where. And so the biggest challenge is there's that gap between business leaders and, if you like, the data science community. HBR's Harvard Business Review estimated only 20% of companies, and this is July this year, are actually using artificial intelligence. So you've still got 80% of the companies worldwide who aren't using artificial intelligence. It's transforming our daily lives already. And I guess that's where I saw the opportunity to say, look, I can help translate between, I guess, the skill I, I developed over the last five or so years at ISLEC was being able to translate between a data science team and business teams and then help bridge that divide. So knowing what's possible in machine learning versus what business leaders or teams are wanting, what's the objective, and then being able to leverage those two. And I thought, look, there's a gap that I'm seeing at the moment because a lot of the AI or machine learning consultancies out there tend to talk to themselves a little bit. They engage with the chief data scientist. They speak to the CTO, which is great. But they're sort of selling to themselves in a way, yes. whereas the sales director, the marketing director, the CEO, they are unaware of what's possible. So that's where we're really um, bridging that gap, I think. There's a unique opportunity in the market is being able to help these senior executives understand. And, and most of it is when you're talking to the CEO, he doesn't want to talk about the technical solution or what code is it, Python or R or he wants to talk about what's the outcome, how's it going to help his KPO goal, and there's sort of 5% sitting in there that's now tell me about the technology that's going to solve it. Now go away and talk to my teams to actually implement that. You've got to be able to engage at that level first, and, I, and that's where I've seen the opportunity. And look, we're dealing across insurance companies, finance companies, retailers. We've had a very strong response from retailers because they're, you know, as I said before, retail's tough now, so they're looking for solutions. They're data-rich, but they're insight poor. But sporting clubs, real estate agents, car manufacturers, so it's everyone seems to be aware and they're like, well, what can happen? What's possible? That's sort of the situation I'm seeing at the moment. That's really great. And tell me a bit more about that gap that you see between the data scientists and how they approach their work. And the, I guess the language and the expectations that happens at the C-suite level, at the board level. What do you see as the some of the main differences there? I'll give you an example. If I go back 
five or so years ago. And iSelect was, we've been in AI for, or they have been AI for 18 odd years. 2012, when I joined, they were very competent and we were advanced in artificial intelligence within the health insurance business at the time. But it was a very small group of people that understood it. So at the time, it was one of the co-founders, the head of data science, the data science team. And they were almost kept off in a room, almost not to be engaged with the rest of the business. Here's a company that is skilled in machine learning, has the capability and invested in the team and resources and time and effort, lots of data. Yet the rest of the business teams that were making decisions didn't understand what they could do. So it was almost like the dark art and magic, black magic sitting over there in that team. And the business leaders had these problems but wouldn't be solved. So it was a disjointed system. We were spending a lot of time, my time at iSelect, one starting at the top, so even the C-suite, making sure that they had a working knowledge of what the data science team were doing, what the algorithms were actually driving. And that way, in layperson's terms, so not full technical terms, but actually saying, well, this is what it is. Here's a propensity model. This is what it's doing. We were using algorithms to drive matching customer and consumer. So we'd try and break that down in non-technical terms, not, not get into the model or what platform it was on or <laughs> any of that. They could then understand the application. We'd then cascade that. And over time, we started to get to a point where a data scientist, a few that could do this, were part of the business teams. Because what we found, the more that we embedded the data scientists into the business, the more they would understand the full business needs and the process. Because I, I think where companies go wrong this day when they're looking at data science, they get a BI team where they go, okay, I'm going to put data science in. And they stick them in the dark room. It used to be the IT team were down in the basement. Now it's the data science. Yeah. So it's they're off doing research as opposed to saying, well, companies are living, breathing organisms that have processes that are joined up. And therefore, if you don't understand what the objective is and then how that process is joined up and how it all works together, the data scientists, they'll make a solution for the wrong thing. They'll actually be off working hard, but not actually understanding how it all joins together. But I say what, what we found is the more we joined that thinking up, the more we embedded the data scientists in the teams, the better those outcomes became. And I, and I think you see lots of companies at the moment that are either disjointed. There's not many that are, I think Sportsbet do a good job. I think what you hear in the industry there, they have analysts and data scientists embedded within their team that focus across combined thinking. The more you do that, the better the outcome. Better for the data scientists, but better for the business people and business leaders. And that, that's the disconnect I see at the moment. Definitely. That is so true. And tell me, what do you think is necessary? And I think I'll know your answer based on what you were saying just then. But I love the point that you made around that only 20% of businesses today are using artificial intelligence. What do you mm. think is necessary to have a wider spread adoption of the technology? I think there's a couple of things. I think one is got to be the company or the board or the CEO have actually got to have a digital transformation strategy. So that's first and foremost, because there's a bunch of companies out there that either assume or either have no knowledge at all of AI machine learning, or even the ones that do have some level of knowledge. I met with a client recently and they said, oh, we're probably three years away from being ready. That was their opening assumption. When we spent the time to explain what's happening, what's possible, what they could do, it completely flipped to, oh, we're ready now. And when can we start work? It's that I'm assuming. And I think a lot of the businesses out there, we're seeing that once you get to that point point, say, okay, I've got a strategy that I'm on a digital transformation. And say you have a data science team in-house, which is fantastic. If you don't, then it's turning to, you know, who can you turn to to help you? The conversations we have with them is, look, data is the key. So understanding where it is, understanding the type of data you've got, 
the quality of the data, the quantity of the data. So helping them understand that is the first step. That's really the inputs. What's the governance and controls and how clean is it, et cetera, that you're sitting around it. But then encouraging them to follow the money. So if their objectives are digital transformation, it's where's the biggest cost, growth, revenue opportunity, impact to the business might be a huge frustration at the moment done manually. So it costs a lot in labor time. And then it's about keeping it simple. So going through that process mapping, what's my current process? What's the outcome I'm looking for? And then I remember there's an old say, the little Johnny jokes, you know, grandpa's standing on the veranda and little Johnny's got to go and chop all this wood. And he's out there, he's bashing away at the wood and he's bashing away, but the axe is blunt. And grandpa says to him, hey, Johnny, why don't you stop and sharpen the axe? And he says, I haven't got time, Grandpa. Just keep chopping. I think we see big companies or data scientists doing that. Um, I haven't got time to sharpen, which is really around the yeah. focus of the objective. What's the outcome I'm yeah. trying to achieve? So I'm just chopping away at a whole bunch of stuff. The data's not clean. But I think we spent 12 months getting our data governance, getting tidying up, creating a data lake, making sure it was all clean. So what we actually found is our output was exponentially greater at the end. We could increase the number of algorithms we could deploy across the business, whereas before that, we're chopping the wood hard with a blunt axe. It would take us six months to do one. All of a sudden, it was taking four weeks to get to a proof of concept. I think it's that the start small. You know, for any of these companies that are out there that are, or well, you're in a business where you've got maybe data scientists, you're engaged in an external company, it starts small. Resist the urge to boil the ocean. Now, there's no point in, you could apply it everywhere. And often companies, I was talking to the team at Google last year, and I said a lot of their requests are, oh, can I have a skill built for the Google Home? And it's really cool, but it actually won't do anything. You know, it's the CEO go, wow, look at that. My company name's being spoken to by Google Home, but it will it actually make you any money. Oh, and often the applying machine learning, it's all the boring processes that sit behind the surface that aren't sitting in Alexa or Siri or Google Home, but that's where you make the money. You know, that's where you optimize it. And I think the last tip for them is don't be afraid to fail. Ultimately, machine learning relies on a whole series of tests that are going to fail because it's trying to find yes. the right the right outcome. So it's being able to understand that failure is part of the process. It's not something you can just ignore. You've got to actually be able to understand that that's part and parcel of uh, coming on this journey. Definitely. That's outstanding in terms of all those points. Follow the money, start small, you will fail. So sort of get comfortable with it. That's excellent for the application and, and sort of going on the journey. And I wanted to ask you, what are the some of the reservations that you see that C-suite executives have or board-level members? What are they worried about in terms of the applicability of AI or what are some of the reasons why they put it off and maybe they think about it that it should be in year three of their digital transformation, not realizing that it could be done quicker or earlier? What are some of the reservations that you see that uh, those people have in terms of the adoption of AI and bringing it into the business earlier? I think this divide between data science, often data scientists don't understand what does a C-suite do? What does a board do? What's the day job of the CEO? But likewise for the CEO, it's that, well, what's the data scientist do? What's possible? What's capable? It's not about I'm coding in R or Python and how good the model is. It's understanding what's possible. You know, and unless yes. you can break down this divide between technical language, in the old days, IT directors would walk in and they'd be trying to explain how great the next enterprise the RP system going in, well, some, all the right. technical specs. Let's say, <laughs> great, but how much money am I going to make? You know, was, was this, we were talking in different languages. You were always coding in different languages. I think it's that CEOs and senior executives don't know what's possible. They don't know where machine learning can be applied. 
that don't know even the different types of models and then the business use case. Even if the informed ones, you know, I've, I've met with clients where they're self-educating, they're, they're learning enough, they're sort of educating themselves, they know in a lot of ways enough to be dangerous. What they don't know is, okay, but how does that apply to my industry? Yes. I've heard of these things. I, I can understand that an algorithm's driving Siri or Google Maps or it's helping me search on the internet via Alexa or Google Home. But if I'm in a health insurance industry, so what? How am I going to apply that? And once you start to talk to them and saying, look, you've got a contact center that is handling four, five, 600,000 calls a year. What if we could take 20% of them that are customer care of, can you update my address? Where do I find mm. this policy? And put it into an AI-driven chatbot. All of a sudden, they're like, oh, I didn't know that's possible. It's that use case and being able to help them in a simple term break down, hey, yes, all these models, because in a lot of ways, they don't care what's driving it. They don't care the model that yes. is sitting behind it. Can you take 20% of my calls and remove it from the contact center so I can put those people back on to preventative calls to help my customer? It's yes. understanding that value chain again. What's the use case? And then explaining it of where and how that can be applied. Correct. So it's put on understanding that value chain and also what the customer actually cares about. What are the outcomes that actually register on their radar versus That's the exactly ones that right. don't? And you also made a really interesting comment that most data scientists don't understand what the day job of the CEO is CEO. and the day job of, of the board. Could you describe that to the people listening? What would you say, in your words, is the day job of a CEO? Well, there's no typical day. I think that's the reality, I think. When you look at a CEO, That's true. when I was CEO of iSelect, you know, being a public company, we were probably, or I was probably spending about 20, 25% of our time with investors, shareholders, potential investors. So you're there. And in that role, you're ultimately there to sell the company. That's sort of the ultimate sales job in the company. The CEO's accountable to the shareholders, but you're there explaining what's happening, talking to them about the direction and the vision. And most of it is around the long-term strategy and direction for the company. I'd spend a lot of time, we, we invested heavily in marketing. So we spent a lot of time with our, and our marketing team and acquisition because ultimately every six months in a public company, you were turning up and had to explain to the shareholders. So how do we go? Here's our corporate strategy. Here's the objectives that I'm going to achieve. And how do we go against those? And then what's the next six, 12 months direction for the company? So it was always, I guess, that balance between you're outlining the company strategy and then working with the various functions across the business against delivering those. And I think, you know, at ISEC, we'd spend, I spent a lot of time with the data science team. That was the other area I'd spend a, as a CEO, you get to apportion your time. Some of it gets taken for shareholder or a large shareholder demands time. You, you've got to give it up. But the one thing you never have enough time as a CEO, never have enough of as a CEO is time. You can always, you know, resources, money, but time's the most challenging. So typically you were trying to engage across the board, shareholders, and then the internal functions. Now, all of that takes you away from the thinking time towards customers where you're actually thinking about the consumer. And I think that there's a high level of demand on a CEO's time. And the more senior you go, the less information you have to make decisions. So perversely, everyone thinks, of, you know, the, the more senior you go, the more insight you have, the more ability to make a call you have because of that time constraint and it's great you know, great advice for a data scientist we'd often start a conversation they want to explain the model and how they did it and how long you know hey tell you what how about we spend all of our time on what did you find i'm going to assume your model's right i'm going to assume that you know what you're doing and then you tell me the insight and let's discuss the insight and the so what in the context of that the day job for a ceo your day's down in 15 minute increments so you're moving from an investor call 
to a decision around capital investment, marketing plan. Next thing you're talking about the deployment of new algorithms. So the types of topics you're dealing with are very, very diverse, often not grouped together. So they're non-linear, if you like. You're having to change gears mentally where you're spending all your time talking about marketing and next thing you've got OHS crisis that you've got to deal with or you've had a regulator come and tap you on the door and you're starting to deal with that or a board member's just giving you a call. It's being able to understand that a CEO's time is one of the most valuable things to them and being out they work across every function in the organization they'll be touching throughout their day their week their year and so you might have just walked in after the regulators landed something on their desk or a we've got a crisis meeting so it's being understand that context and therefore almost respect their time to say okay if i'm going to get limited time here what's their objective how do i make it crystal clear that what i'm talking to today links back to their objective and therefore so what what is it that this deployment, this new algorithm, this new investment, what am I asking for? What's it going to mean? Because unless you can do that, in a lot of ways, you're wasting their time. Time's limited. So, And I think people that come in and here's what we're trying to do, here's the objective, here's how it links back to the company strategy, immediately you've got the CEO's attention. If you can tell them it's going to make money, <laughs> yeah. and here's so what, here's how much money it's going to make, efficiency is going to improve, or it might be we're going to improve customer satisfaction scores, net promoter score, reduce cost of marketing, labor cost, increase revenue. It's the big buckets. And if you can get to that uh, so what quickly, you'll find that all of a sudden the, TA, the CEO will make time for you because they'll see it as important and it's helping them. And the more you can do that, the more time and effort and energy that they'll give you. That is so great. I love that. Yeah, focus on what they care about. Here's the strategy. These are the some of the key drivers. And this is the change that you can make on it. Focus on that. That is outstanding. That's really good in terms of focusing what type of problems to tackle. And you told us around a little bit about how to tackle them in terms of starting small, focusing on the governance, and make sure that you're ready for some level of failure. And I really liked your approach taking with Wilson AI around doing the process maps as part of the, the project implementations to do that, the as is, and then working together to build the to be version of the process. Tell me about the journey that you're having to take customers through in order to get to a to be version of the process and how much the things that, that I wanted to ask you about is around expectations management from the customers versus the hype that's out there and educating them on what can be done, what's real, what's hype again, and taking them to something that can be done quickly and then things that can be done in a longer time frame. How do you navigate that process with the customers? What we try to do is assess, first of all, almost like a baseline. So how much do they know? I'm working on the basis if I've got a meeting with a client that there's some level or some desire for the application of machine learning or AI into their business. Now, sometimes you need to you know, almost form the baseline of how much do they understand terminology. Sometimes you've got to take it right back to explain the difference between traditional programming, where here's an input, here's the rules, and here's the output. It might be a rules-based algorithm to here's what you're doing in deep network where you're saying here's the input and output you're expecting. Now it'll figure out the transition rules and it'll constantly learn as it gets more data and experience. Sometimes it's explaining those models, but what, what I find is being able to explain high level the types of things, but then talk to them about what does that mean for their industry. So really explain the industry use cases and the types of areas or types of processes, if you like, where machine learning can be applied. Mm -hmm. And then we distill it down again back to it's the business objectives. What we're trying to get to is what, where's the top three priorities. So we might capture a whole series of here's the potential use cases. One of the things we then do is saying, 
do you have the capability? And capability could be, yes, we want to automate that process, but we don't have any data or we haven't been capturing the data or the head of IT thought it'd be a good idea because the storage was expensive. So therefore, they only batch it every week instead of constantly. So you might have to say to them, look, although that's high impact and high value on our assessment of where you want to apply for the machine learning, you're going to have to wait six or 12 months to gather that data properly in a way that we're going to be able to use it. So it's being able to help coach them through what do they want, what do they have, or you know, that you talk about the governance structure, understanding that you might need to take a retail environment, you might need to go and create the data. So we're going to put a facial recognition camera in for a month to digitize that environment to get the customer demographic and profile before we can combine it with their point of sale data to start to draw the insights out from that. So I think it's being able to understand that sort of that base level, where are they at, what's their priorities, and we try and stick to tell us the top three. What are the top three priorities? And the process we then use, it's a three-step process. We actually put our data scientists into the business to go and look at the data sources, extract it, cleanse it, you know, structure it up, fit it in the way that's usable. And that might uncover as you go through that process where all of a sudden you go, oh, it's not a state that we can use, it's going to take us longer. Or you might say, actually, when we go back against our business use cases, that area of the data is really clean. So let's the capability side, let's prioritize there because you're going to get the best return for that investment. There's no point in spending two years cleaning everything to then start when we say, well, we've got capability over here. And in parallel, we'll start the work and cleaning up on the other side. But we'll start over here. What we're finding then we get to a, the second step we use is then we go, okay, let's build a proof of concept. Let's actually get it, test it, and actually show you some results because you might have to retrain the model a few times. Once you're happy with the outcome, then it's about turning that into a production-ready environment. So you're deploying it and saying, okay, thanks very much. We now understand what it's doing. It's consistent. It's giving us the outcomes. Let's deploy it. I think it's important to take the clients on that journey, whether you're an external or you're an in-house data science team, because it gives you the opportunity to check in, to verify, back to that, verify the outcome you're expecting, going through that process with the team, showing them the proof of concept. In a lot of ways, you're doing the hard work in the background, but then you're saying, right, here's our priority list and here's our capabilities. Now let's execute against that one, get some results. There's a proof point. As soon as you have a proof point and business people can go, oh, okay, it's taking me three months, six months. I've invested X and I'm now getting Y return. You'll probably find their appetite will increase pretty quickly into now let's do the next one, the next one, the next one, because all of a sudden yes. you're seeing what the use cases are and the benefit of working with data scientists. Exactly right. And that's a great way to take them on the journey. And I particularly like that you meet them at the level that they're at and take them on the journey from there. It's been interesting. I've seen sometimes there's Melbourne Data Science Conference, we were talking about it the other way, that imposter syndrome. That brings some interesting behaviors where sometimes data scientists are there to like almost have to prove that they're valuable or got a master's or I've got a PhD and therefore I'm feeling out of place, you know, a bit of an imposter and therefore I've got to prove that I'm capable of doing this or what's possible. I think if you're in-house, I'd take that as red. It's already assumed that you're capable because you've got a job in the building. I think being able to translate to the customer or the business leader in a way that is in plain English. And this can be challenging because you've got, often you see a lot of data scientists are a bit introverted. They don't, they're not comfortable being in a big environment, you know, large presentation, and they might not want to speak up during that environment. So it's picking your time where you might say, okay, you've been in a business meeting, you've heard the C-suite executive saying, this is a problem, and I, you know, how do we solve it? So maybe you need to approach them separately 
in a case where you can say, hey, I think I can solve that problem for you. Here's what I need. Here's what I, how long it'll take me. Because otherwise, it's almost having the answer and keeping it in isolation is not helping anybody. And it's quite confronting, that situation. I know sometimes those big business meetings where there's lots of different people and opinions and egos sitting in the room, it's being able to pick your moment. But if you're not um, comfortable in those environments, find a time when you can do it. That's so critical for data scientists to be able to get hear their voice, get their voice heard. But if they can't find a way that they can do it, no one's going to come and ask you. You know, everyone's busy doing their own thing. And I think that that is such a key point. And you also mentioned it when you were telling us about the day of a CEO or the CEO's day job. What you said there was if you go to the CEO and talk to them about one of the metrics that they care about and you tell them how you can improve that for the business, then you will have time from them. You will have get resources if you need, and then you can prove yourself and get more time as a result. So it's about making your ideas relevant to the business and then executing on them to get support in the business. Is that what your message is? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think because sometimes you, you data scientists will sit there and they have that either the imposter syndrome or they don't want to say, I don't know, mm -hmm. feel that pressure to have the solution or the outcome or, or be the, there's that organizational pressure of you're meant to have the insights here. There's a either an implied pressure where they don't want to say anything just in case, or they're really nervous because they're sitting there going, I don't know. It's actually okay to say, you know what, I don't have that answer right now. Let me go away and have a look and I'll come back to you. You're much better in those environments to do that just straight up. That value, being able to either go and explain it simply and link it to the objective. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's the CEO or one of your colleagues up here. If you can say, hey, I think I can help you with that problem or ask them, is this a problem? Do you think if we did this, would that really help you? And pose it as a question. If it's a bit of the old self-interest and what it does, if you can consistently do that, and answer the what's in it for me. So you're, you're saying, here's clarity. I'm trying to do this. Is this your objective? Yes, it is. I'm consistently coming with that solution for you and I'm the person you turn to. And then it's a bit of the formula of over the top of that, what's in it for me? So you answer that question. Well, here's what's going to happen at the end of it. You build massive trust. That's a trust formula. Consistency, clarity, over self-interest. You find that people go, oh, every time I turn to Felipe, he, he helps me with that problem and he consistently does it. And that makes me look good and my KPIs because he's making my job better. I keep coming to Felipe and saying, hey, can you help me with this? I've got this problem. Is there a way you can solve it? And that's to close that divide we're talking about between business people and data science teams. It's all about trust. Each party understanding at a working level, you know, not expertise, but what does the other do? How do they do it? What's important to them? And if you answer that question, all of a sudden, you know, the arm comes across the aisle and they start reaching for you. 100%. That is the path. That's fantastic. And tell me, how do you help customers get models into production? What are some of the challenges that you're seeing there in that sort of end bit? Yeah, I think it depends on the client, but I think and often it's where their technology stack is. You might have IT teams that, uh, again, have a different objective. You might have to overcome legacy systems. That's often the challenge. So I think it's understanding and getting those right people because as you, as you come from the CEO or the C-suite, you've then got to get the right operational people in the room. It's that guy that's been in the business for 20 years. He did the process 20 years ago. He holds it together with sticky tape today. No one else knows how it's running. They're in every business, but yes. they also know the solution that would transform their world. And being able to get the right technical people, the right business people in the room, you know, whether that's the IT people, for example, you might need a solution architect, system architect to actually sit there and say, okay, here's where we're at now. Let's figure out how we embed this. And I guess the way it depends on, again, 
we can work across custom. So we're doing a custom a, uh, algorithm for somebody. We might do a, um, a AI as a service to say it's a process that's infrequently used. So they might tap in via an API or there might be five underwriters that are all doing the same thing. So we build one under, underwriting engine and then they leverage off that as almost like a platform. So it depends on the solution you're putting in because I think every company that we've come across and certainly in all of my old employers, everybody thinks their system's a legacy system and it's crappy. Whether you're a big bank, even at iSelect, everyone looked at us, oh, you guys must be amazing. And it's like, nah, we've got legacy systems all over the place and we're going on a digital yeah. transformation. We're a tech company and that, you know, and that was, everybody assumes that their systems are crappy and it's like, yep, it is fine. But there's ways you can overcome that and integrate or use APIs or layers like MuleSoft where you might do an integration layer to make it easier. So it's just sitting back and making sure you've got the right operational people in the room that actually understand how the systems all work together. Nothing frustrates me more. I met with a client the other day and they had robotic process automation. This particular company come in, no, no, we're going to scrap all your processes and just start from new. And I said, oh, okay. And the client was, you know, they were understandably concerned, but taking on good faith that well, this company must have been able to do it before, so therefore, maybe they can do it with us. And I've seen it so many times when I've been on the client side with software vending companies where they turn up and you're putting in a new CRM system, an ERP, a marketing platform. And what happens is that software vendor thinks from their perspective and only about their process, their deployment. What they forget to take into account is that the organization and all the systems are connected. So as soon as you disconnect one thing, it's got five other unintended consequences. And that's why I say being able to process map, you, you might get to the end of that process mapping and going, you know what? We don't need a faster horse, we need a car. So the process you've got is really crappy and we're not going to use it. We are going to completely replace it. But unless you have an as-is and a 2B state and you go through it and you understand all the inputs, linkages and outputs, you'll start to pull something out. It's like you know pulling a carburetor out of a car all of a sudden the car stops working off. Oh, I was just replacing the carburetor. Well, sorry. It's the same in IT you know when you're deploying these systems you're getting to a production ready state what's the outcome what's the linkages what's the expectation but then making sure you monitor it so as you're going through the process we used to see it at ISEC all the time we deploy something and we'd forget to monitor it and all of a sudden something go wrong we go oh hang on so it's being able to step back and say right I'm expecting this outcome. Here's what the objective is. I'm deploying it on this date, making sure I do tests. So we run a, you know, an A-B test, small scale, 5% of volume of traffic might go to that, then 10%, 30%. And eventually you go 50% and running a true A-B test. And then all of a sudden you go, right, now I'm comfortable with all those outcomes, fully deploy it. You've got to go on that scale-up journey with them and understand all the other linkages and systems because otherwise what happens is you'll get blamed. Oh, that's changed and therefore it must be your fault because it's a correlation as opposed to, no, it didn't cause it. You had another system breakage sitting over somewhere else. But if you're not taking care, the other thing is making sure you write it down. Write down all your yeah. assumptions. Write down all those linkages, what it was. So if you, something does go wrong, you can always roll back. You can always go back to the old process. Make sure you can go back. If you're throwing the baby in the bathwater out and you're going all in, you're going to have some good lessons. <laughs> That's right. That is a pro tip right there. That's really great. Ah, this has been so fascinating, so interesting. I can't believe how quickly the time has, has gone done. through. <laughs> so I only have one last question for you. That is, I'll ask you for a takeaway for the listeners. What's a, a piece of advice that you would like to give the listeners something to leave them thinking about? I think there's two things. It's what we touched on earlier during the discussion, which is understand that value chain. So truly understanding all the way through 
and not just stopping at the client or the question they've asked. Go beyond that one or two steps so that you can know what's important to them because you might find a different solution. And I think the other you know, more general career advice, what I've learned through my career, is don't be afraid of failure and all those difficult situations. You, know, you might have a horrible boss or a crappy company. When you get through the other side, you'll actually find out that you've learned the most from those situations. They're the ones that become career forming or they're the moments that you have that aha moment or they stick with you because in those most difficult and challenging situations, like at the time it feels uncomfortable, but that's where the learning happens. That's where you get the insights that will last you your career. And you know, in a lot of ways, the more of those you have, the better the ultimately and the longer you go in your career because you, you've learned more, got more stripes and learned more things along the way. So don't be afraid of those situations. That is outstanding. And that is a fantastic note to end on. Scott, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure, extremely fascinating and extremely valuable. Thank you so much for making the time and sharing your journey and all your insights. Thanks very much, Philippa. We'll talk to you again soon. Cheers. Definitely. Thanks. Boost your data science career with skills that count. James Cook University's 100% online Master of Data Science is one of Australia's fastest. Study while you work and focus on just one subject at a time. Visit online.jcu.edu.au for more information. As data scientists, we're always looking for ways to gather more data and to understand our customers better. Firebox, do just that. With Firebox, you can easily create a quiz for your app, website, or blog. These quizzes are used to generate leads, educate, or engage your customers. Check them out today. That's Firebox with a Y, so F-Y-R-E-B-O-X.com. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.